Well, good evening, and uh, welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. So this lesson may be my favorite one. This lesson may be, the, it's part of the reason I wanted to actually do the book of Ephesians, is the, the lesson from this particular passage is one that I think will make, your, make a big difference in your life. So I think I've pre-sold that pretty well. So. Uh, hold that thought while I pray for us and we're gonna dive right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful that we can study your word. I pray that it will move from our head to our hearts into our hands and that the gospel might completely saturate us. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for peace in the world. I pray for peace that you can bring and I pray that you would turn the hearts of the leaders of this world toward you, toward justice, towards what is right. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's your... Uh, number for questions during class, as always. Those of you online, uh, you, you can uh, see that in the online uh, handout. So this lesson is, we're going to go through, this is a Bible study. We are literally just going to go through chapter two of the book of Ephesians. And at the end, I don't actually want to make an application because a lot of times what you do is you read the scripture and then you apply it to your life. What I actually wanna do is something a little bit different because we're dealing with something that I don't think can be solved with an application. And the problem that I really think this scripture wants to talk about is what I think is an epidemic for us. It really talks a great deal about the idea of peace, finding peace, not peace as in stopping the Ukraine war, Peace as in what we are all looking for, a sense of peace, a sense of reconciliation. And the greatest disturber in my view, as I look at the world and read the statistics, probably the greatest disturber of our peace, whether it's peace with other people, peace in our social lives, whatever it may be, is anxiety, worry. In the Bible, those are the same word, same, they're translated translate the same Greek word, is worrying or being anxious. And I think anxiety steals our peace. So I, don't, I think it's bigger than an application, like read this Bible verse and now go do this. Do it three times a week and your anxiety will go away, right? This passage doesn't really have an application. All I really want you to do is believe it believe that it is true. So you now know the end of this lesson before we even start. So if you've got somewhere to be, I feel like you already know where we're gonna end on this lesson. Well, let me start by recapping just a little bit. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. And if you remember, he took this journey, started in Antioch and went all around and then made his way back to Jerusalem, and this was a long trip. It took him from 53 to 57 AD. Now, a little over two years of that time was spent in the city of Ephesus and preaching, and then people that believed the good news would go back to their towns all through what the Romans called the province of Asia that you can see on this map, which is modern-day Turkey. And there were so many churches that got started when they would just go home and say, listen, guess what? I've got good news to proclaim to you. Jesus Christ, this event happened and it has huge implications for our lives. So 
Paul spent a little over two years there. Later, he finds himself, Rome is not on this uh, map, so he's, on, he's in Rome, and he's in prison, and it's about 62 AD. So it's five years later, he writes this letter back to the believers in Ephesus. That's the only reason we title it Ephesians. Didn't have a title originally, it was just a letter. And as you read the first verse, you'll say, this is Paul writing to the saints. Saints are Christians, believers, in Ephesus. And so this letter was spread all through the province of Asia, from church to church to church, and they would read it on Sunday mornings, and they would discuss it, and they would, it would shape their lives. Ephesus, I didn't show you very many pictures last week, but there's a, a guy on the internet that's doing these, um, basically taking the ruins. This is one of the main streets in Ephesus here, and the ruins are magnificent of Ephesus. This is the Celsus Library on the right. But he's doing, showing you at the top, you can see what it would have looked like then. Now, so there's a little bit of artistic license, but what I want you to realize is all those colors are there. It was a very colorful city, very rich city, one of the three great seaports of the ancient world. I mean, it was extremely wealthy, a lot of commerce going through there, people mixing from all over the world. A great place for Paul to be for a little over two years preaching. And people would believe the good news and off they'd go on their boat. And the gospel got spread a lot of places because of his preaching there. So in the beginning, in chapter 1, we started with this idea. And I want you to get a, a view of the flow because we're going to jump into chapter 2. But chapter 1 starts out by Paul saying that we as followers of Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Here's what that actually means. It doesn't mean you've been blessed in heaven and you can pick those up when you go in. You know, there's gonna be little party favors and you can pick up all your blessings as you go in. That's not what that means. What he means is you have been blessed with everything that really matters. To say with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm means everything that's going to last forever is yours. Not everything that's going to perish is yours. I mean, a lot of these Ephesians, I mean, they were probably driving 10-year-old cars. You know, they, they didn't have every temporal blessing, but they had every blessing that really mattered, everything that was going to last. That's what he means. And he says, and let me give you an example. God chose you before the foundation of the world. That's how good he is. He didn't wait to see how good looking you were. He didn't wait to see what a nice person you were going to be. He made it possible for you to be saved before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ, his son, redeemed you, meaning he was willing to come die on a cross, bear your sins, and then be raised from the dead on your behalf. And finally, just to prove to you he will deliver, the Holy Spirit seals you. When you placed your trust in Christ, you were sealed. You got a piece of God's very spirit put inside you. That's how he starts. I mean, it's an upbeat letter. He basically says, I want you to realize what you have. Your circumstances may not look like that. 
because they were under, starting to undergo some persecution by this time. I mean, there's a reason Paul's in prison, right? Because he's, he's a Christian. And so they're starting to undergo a little persecution. And he says, listen, I want to remind you, you have every blessing that matters. And God chose you, Jesus redeemed you, and the Holy Spirit seals you. And so you get this wow. And that's what I want you to think when you read that. Wow. That is what you are if you are a follower of Christ. So chapter two, he turns and he says, and I want to remind you just how blessed you are. And he starts like this. He says, now you were dead. He's reminding, I mean, it doesn't sound very upbeat, but it's true. He says, I want you to remember you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you used to live, walked is a euphemism, and you used to live when you were following the course of this world. That's as true for every one of us as it was for them. We used to be dead people walking. We just didn't know it yet. We were doomed when we used to live according to the way of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We could talk a lot about that, but here's the short version. That's Satan. That is who is behind the evil in this world. He said, you actually used to be following him. You may not have known it. You may not have been a Satanist. You might not have been going to the temple of Satan downtown, but when you used to follow the way of this world, you were alienated from God. You were effectively on Satan's team. He says, and that spirit, Satan, is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all used to live. We, this is what you were. When you lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. Man, that has not changed. What's he saying? Who was your master? Whatever I wanted, my self-centeredness, my pride, my greed, my lust, whatever it may be, my mind, power, fame, whatever. He said, that's what you used to be chasing and you were dead. You just didn't realize it that whenever this little life of yours is done, you're doomed. He said, that's what you used to be. And you were by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God was justly placed on us as rebels. We had turned away from God. We were exactly like Adam and Eve. We made a choice to turn our back on God and go pursue our interests in the world. He says, but God... And that's a, just a powerful little phrase. But God, because he was rich in mercy and the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. And so what's he saying here? He said, you've been blessed with everything that really matters. And I want to bring this home to you. Do you remember the life that you led before you had an encounter with Jesus Christ? That's what he's asking them. That's what I'm asking you. That's what he's asking each one of us. Do you remember that? Do you remember how hopeless and helpless that was? He says, but God intervened. He didn't say, but you changed your mind, but you cleaned up your act. No, this is better than that. This is, but God took the initiative and made a way for you to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. 
one thing that you should definitely be seeing through all of this and hearing through this is, have you seen anywhere in here yet that it says, oh, and by the way, you better watch your P's and Q's and you better act really good because the only reason that God has given you these blessings is because you act so good. You aren't seeing that anywhere, are you? This is unbelievably good news. It's by grace that you have been saved or rescued. And then he goes on, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift from God, not a result of your good deeds or your niceness or anything about you so that nobody can boast and say, God had to save me, I was such a nice guy. I'm the life of the party. He wanted me in heaven. I'm getting an appearance fee for being there. No, nobody can boast, right? It's because of his grace. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good deeds. What good deeds? The ones that God has prepared for us. So the deeds, the behavior, the kingdom work comes after you have been rescued by God. Does that make sense? We flip that sometimes, and it's really easy to do. It's easy for us as Americans to fall into a, uh, a I don't really wanna say a works-based salvation because nobody thinks they believe in that, but it's really easy to slip into a performance orientation because everything you do in your life and everything you do in Western culture is geared around a performance orientation. Do good, you get paid more. Work harder, something good happens. I mean, it's a performance orientation in the world. It's easy for that to bleed over and we can reverse it and say, I better act really good so I can stay in God's good graces. But I really wanna point out, there's nothing about your good deeds in here that has anything to do with you being rescued. And I talked last time about how sometimes that's really hard to accept, but I told you, if you wanna get rid of anxiety, so we're gonna get there, and if you want peace, this is true. God says it's true. The question is, do you really believe it's true? So this is what God says about you. But here's the interesting thing. Two, two thoughts on this. Number one, if we're gonna to get to peace in a little bit, notice where he starts. If you said, okay, well my problems are not with God, my problems are with my harebrained coworkers, right? And the scripture says, well, hold up there just a minute. If you want to have peace in your horizontal relationships, it starts with peace in your vertical relationship. There's a reason he says this first, because he's gonna talk, this chapter is mainly about your horizontal relationships. It's about finding peace, it's about uh, reconciliation. But he starts by saying, if you want to fix your horizontal relationships, you need to work on your vertical relationship. I'll give you one great example of this is, and I think you guys probably already know this, but every time uh, we, I do uh, counseling with people that are going to get married, if I can't talk them out of it, then this is my advice. I'm joking. I was a joke. Uh, but it, here's my advice to them is the best Thing you can do for your spouse and the best thing you can do to be close to your spouse is to pursue Jesus. 
And that's this principle, is you can use every tactic of good communications and every psychotherapeutic method of getting along with each other, and those are good things and you should learn them. But the most important thing that you can do is if you are both pursuing Jesus Christ, you will come together. You have a common goal, you have a shared value, your deepest and most meaningful things in life are shared. Best thing you can do uh, for your marriage is to pursue Jesus Christ. That's what this is saying. There's no peace here without peace there. So let me pause there before I tell you the second thing that I think is important to get out of this. Question. Yes, what does it mean, uh, the phrase, which God prepared in advance for us to do? Yes, let's talk about that. It's a little off my point, but it's really important. So I wanna take you back, I wanna give you this model. So God creates Adam and Eve, and God uh, cares for them, right? Creates them, cares for them, populates the earth, puts them in the garden, and so God shows them grace or favor. I mean, he, he takes care of them before they ever do a thing. It's not like he said, look, why don't you keep the garden up? If it looks good when I come back, then you're still hired. No, 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 no. He did all the good stuff first, right? Same with us. You're saved by grace through faith before any works come into the picture. So what does it mean that God prepared good works for you to do ahead of time? He, in that garden, put Adam and Eve to work. Why? Because we need work. A mission. Work may be the wrong word for us here. We need a mission. We need to be about something. We were not created to be couch potatoes, right? And whatever age or stage of life you're in, you have a mission. It may not be the same when you're 80 years old as it was when you're 40, but you still have a mission. God has work for you to do. Kingdom work. Uh, working in the vineyard of the Lord is, is a great way that the Old and New Testament talk about it. God said, look, I didn't rescue you and bring you into the family and then say, well, just sit around. He said, no, we have work to do. I have a mission for you. We are all about reclaiming this whole universe and redeeming the whole world. So what is some of the work that he prepared for us? Go into all the world and uh, teach the good news. Teach everyone to obey everything I've commanded you. Share the good news of the gospel. Tell them your story. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I had an encounter with Jesus and now my life has meaning and purpose and this is what I'm about. He has work for us to do. So when, when he talks about that, I want you to see it the same as the Garden of Eden. We have become and we have been reconciled back to be in good relationship with God. You know the last time anybody was in a good relationship with God? Adam and Eve before the fall. Do, do you realize that? Once Adam and Eve before the fall were in intimate relationship with God. God walked in the garden, they were in God's presence, and they had communion with God. They sinned, they're cast out all the way from then till Jesus Christ. No one is right with God. 
you now have been reconciled with God. You have been sort of transported back to Adam and Eve's state before the fall. Not through anything that I did, but because God chose us, Jesus redeemed us, and the Spirit sealed us. We are back reconciled with God. And just like Adam and Eve, God has productive work for us to do. So that's a great question. He said, look, you are been created and I have a mission for you. So second thing I wanna say about this is, and this may be just not something you've thought about before, and this has huge implications. So God chose you, Jesus redeemed you, and the spirit has sealed you. You used to be dead in your sins, but God made you alive through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You have been saved by his grace through faith, through trusting in that. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit more in a second. Okay, most people stop there and they say, hallelujah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And then off we go living our lives in our nervous, anxious little ways, right? And we tend to get caught up in the anxiety and the cares of the world. And here's the point I wanna make. It's as though we think God ran out of grace, that he spent it all when he saved us. You've been saved by grace through faith. And, but here's my point. Where did we ever get the idea that God was finished giving you grace? Do you understand what I'm saying? No, this is not gonna segue into prosperity gospel. All right, this is not gonna say, God wants you to be rich, by the way. Okay, it's not turning into that, okay? What I wanna say though is, we just sort of subtly in our mind think, well, he saved me by his grace. He's not even close to being done pouring out his favor on you. God is still giving you grace. God is still with you. And I think that's a key realization because you think, oh, so I know that you don't intellectually believe this, but we act like we believe this. And that is, God saved me, I'm living my life the best I can, and I'll go to heaven when I'm done. That's really selling God's grace very, very short. God has big plans for how this life goes for you as well. He doesn't have plans to save you. I'm not, what I'm not saying is he doesn't have plans to save you from any trouble. He doesn't have plans to say you'll never have woes. I mean, Jesus was very upfront about that, but he's still in the grace business and he has an inexhaustible supply. So he turns then from the vertical relationship, and, and again, he's not saying, do this, you'll be good with God, and that'll fix all your horizontal problems. No, he's reminding them, you are reconciled to God. You've been saved by grace through faith. Therefore, and now he wants to turn, he says, you need to believe that that is true. If you don't actually believe that that is true, you're gonna have a lot of trouble in your horizontal relationships. So he turns and he says this. Now remember, so now he's just turning and he's gonna give you an example of the worst horizontal relationships that they knew. And that's Jews and everybody else. He said, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, called the uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcision, these are just euphemisms that they used, he said, remember that you were separated from Christ. Why? Because you were a Gentile. 
If you were a Jew, you at least had a covenant with God. Oh, it was a tough covenant, 613 laws, they didn't do a very good job with it, but they had a relationship with God. Gentiles, you got nothing. It says you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from God's chosen people, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, God owed you nothing, you had no hope, and you were God, I like this translation better, you were God forsaken in the world. This is an ugly little picture, but it's absolutely true. God chose the Jewish people. The Gentiles were off doing their own thing. I mean, we, we all today and historically turned our back on God and off we go. And this was our condition. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from God. We didn't have a covenant with God. We didn't have any hope and we were without God in the world. We had no grace, if you will, from God. We were on our own. This is Romans chapter one. This is Romans chapter one. You turned your back on God and God said, have at it. Go ahead, big boy, let me know how it works out for you. Not good, right? But what he's saying is, but now, because of Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how, and this is the interesting thing, interesting what he doesn't say, how is he going to reconcile the worst horizontal relationship there could be? I mean, from 1400 BC until the time of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles have hated each other's guts. I mean, historically speaking, they hated each other. God loves us, he doesn't love you. Oh yeah, you're stuck up and we're gonna conquer you. I mean, this is awful. But how does he say that God resolved this? Oh, we had mediation. We had sensitivity training. We all went to anger management. No, that's not how he solved this, is it? He said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take my own son is going to come and he's gonna radically change the circumstances where everyone can be reconciled to God. He said, I'm going, you may have done this before in discipline with your kids when they didn't get along, but what he said was, you Jews and you Gentiles don't get along, you're gonna share a room. That's kind of what he said in a spiritual way. I'm gonna let the Gentiles also be reconciled to me. Oh, not because they deserve it, because of Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, Jews, you guys don't deserve it so much either, but you know what? The blood of Christ will cover you too. Now you boys come on in here and share a room. He's going to do this through Jesus Christ. By reconciling both of us, with him, you look at each other and you go, well, okay, I guess we're brothers and sisters now, aren't we? That's how God is going to fix these horizontal relationships, by reconciling everyone to him. This little issue I wanted to tell you about, this means a lot to them. Uh, everybody reading this knows this, because the temple in Jerusalem has been in Jerusalem in Solomon's time, 930 BC. Then it's destroyed in 586, it's rebuilt. Herod built this little beauty. This is a model of what Herod's temple would have looked like 
in the time of the writing of this letter. Okay, and it's unbelievable. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And everybody knows about it. Even if you're not a Jew, you know about it. And you know what everybody knows about this temple? What they all knew and you're about to know is the enmity runs deeper than you can imagine. So, let me tell you how the temple's designed. This is called the court of the Gentiles. Even you unwashed heathens can come into this court. And you know what they were doing out there? Selling stuff. That's why Jesus said, you gotta be kidding me. This is where the Gentiles can come and you guys are ripping them off. You know, he turns over the tables and he said, this is a house of prayer. You're making my father look bad. All right, so the Gentiles are out here. You can barely see it, but this is actually a pretty good size wall right here. And there's a wall right here. You can't go through that wall unless you're a Jew. And so then you go into the court of the women and the court of the men and the priests. And inside here is the Holy of Holies. Uh, there's an altar out here uh, where you do sacrifices, etc. But these walls, you can't go there if, unless you're a Jew. But it gets worse than that. Josephus tells us, he says, there was the first enclosure in the midst of which, and not far from it, was the second, that you go up by a few steps. This was encompassed by a stone wall for a partition. So I'm gonna come back. He said, this whole area was encompassed by a stone wall. That's these little walls that you can see in this model. He said, and there was an inscription on that wall that said any foreigner that passed through here would die. Well, that sounds really rude. And that sounds really stern, but it turns out Josephus was right because archeologists have found some of those stones from that wall. The inscriptions turn out, this one happens to be, uh, that one's in Greek, but it was in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. So you would have this same inscription because everybody, remember I told you Alexander the Great in our last series, not everybody read Greek, but everybody understood enough. But between Latin and Greek and, and Hebrew, everybody can read this. And it says, loose translation, no non-Jew, when they say stranger, they mean anybody that's not a Jew, is to enter within this wall an enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible for his own death, which will most definitely ensue. Now, you may be thinking, Jews couldn't do the death penalty. Romans didn't allow anybody to do the death penalty. They let you run your courts however you want to. You know, you can set your speed limits in Jerusalem, whatever you want, I really don't care, but you can't do a death penalty. Only Rome can do it. This was the one exception in the whole Roman Empire, is the Jews were allowed to kill anybody who wasn't a Jew that went inside their temple. That's the one exception to this rule, and they did. If they saw a Gentile, or if they thought you were a Gentile, before you knew it, they killed people for being inside there. In fact, when Paul goes to Rome, how he ends up, or when he goes to Jerusalem, how he ends up in prison, is he goes into the temple area with some guys that look like Gentiles. They actually are born Jews, they're circumcised, but they look like Gentiles. And all these Jews had heard, Paul's been preaching to the Gentiles. 
And they decide, oh my gosh, he brought Gentiles in here. And they decide to kill him and they almost do. You can read about this in the book of Acts. There was a massive riot. And the centurion looked down, because there's a fortress that could look down into here because there's so much trouble in here. And he said, oh my God, it looked like they're gonna kill that guy. Guess we better go find out what's going on. So they go down and they arrest Paul, of course, and tell everybody else, back off. And, uh, but they're gonna, they were literally in the process of killing him because they thought that he had brought a Gentile in here. This is how much enmity there is between the two of them. And so this had been going on for a long time. And so this is what he's talking about when he talks about that hostility. Yeah, question. Okay, so tell us who are the Gentiles? What is their lineage? If you aren't a Jew, you're a Gentile. So the, the word for Gentile in Greek, Hebrew it's different. Hebrew it's ruder. But in Greek, uh, the word for Gentile is ethnos, where we get our word ethnic. And so it also is translated the nations. So anytime you read in the Bible about the nations, those are the ethnic people. In other words, you're either Jew or you're some kind of ethnic mongrel. So everybody is a Gentile except the Jews. Meaning if you were not uh, descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, if you were not genetically related to them and Jewish, you were a Gentile. So everybody else is a Gentile. And so it was only God's chosen people. So only Jews who were circumcised Jews could go in the temple. So here's what he says then. Let's go back to Ephesians. For he himself is our peace. Now we're talking about this kind of peace amongst each other even Gentiles and Jews being at peace with one another. Because the early church had Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians. You're all Christians now. You're all adopted into God's family. Yeah, but I hate those people. And they're like, yeah, I hate them too. And he's like, no, Christ is our peace. He has made us both one. We're in the same family. He has broken down in his flesh at the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. When he says that, everybody knows it's that wall. When he says dividing wall of hostility, they go, oh, I know what you're talking about. It's those stuck up Jews that have this wall with a sign and if I go past it, they're gonna kill me and nobody will care. They're allowed to. They knew what this meant. And they're like, well, you got a big job ahead of you if you wanna reconcile us. He said he abolished the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new person in place of two. This is really interesting what he's saying. Thereby making peace, reconciling both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off. That's a euphemism for Gentiles. It's, it's rude. And what it means is you're one of those far off people. What does it mean far off? You're so far from God, he doesn't even care about you. I mean, seriously, that's why they were called those who are far off, meaning God can't even see you. You guys are worthless. And to those who were near, and they called themselves, we're near, we're near to God. We talk to him all the time. And so you see this, and what he says is, look, this is probably one of the worst <clears throat> social relationships you can think of. You know how God reconciled it? 
because he basically killed two old people, two old persons, and made you both one. You're now, both find your identity in Christ. You no longer have an identity as a Jew. You no longer have an identity as a Parthian, an Iranian, a Scythian, a Syrian. You no longer have those identities. You are now one new person in Jesus Christ. So you see that no matter what you might think about how to get peace in the world, how to get peace in your relationships, the Bible's answer is simply this. You can only find peace with each other when you have found peace with God and a new identity in Christ. Short of that, there are always going to be problems and history proves that to be true. The Bible's answer is very unique and some would say, well, that's not very nice. I wanna know how I can do it. And the Bible says, there is no way for you to live in harmony with one another until you are in harmony with God and you have a new identity. Question. Yeah, this is, this is the action item you said you weren't gonna do. <clears throat> um, so how does this apply in today's world with the tribalism, racism, political, factions that we see? Yes, the Bible's answer to that, and he's not finished here, because this isn't something you do, it's something you become. The fundamental question, which we'll get to in a second, is do you believe this is who you are? There are always going to be tribalism. Tribalism always leads to violence, and that's what you're seeing played out in our world. People want to find an identity and where are they finding their identity? We can talk about this for a long time, but here's the short version. This is so, the Bible says what you read in your paper and you see going on is absolutely inevitable if you do not have a new identity in Jesus Christ because human beings are going to find an identity. And in our culture in the West today, you know where people are trying to find identity? In some identity group. I might be part of a gang. I'm a Crips. No, I'm blood. It might be part of an intersectional group. I'm a black female and I've been downtrodden forever. Sister and everybody else is the enemy. This is intersectionality in a nutshell, is everybody's trying to find an identity and we even call them identity groups. What's your identity group? Okay, so that's where people are trying to find it. And do you see that somehow miraculously bringing about peace in our world? No, it's bringing about more hostility, isn't it? Because once you find your identity as us versus them, you have no peace. You have hostility and you will eventually have violence. That's just the history of the world in a nutshell. The Bible says the only way to change this is to become something different. It's not a matter of, okay, I need to act like a Christian. Nope, can't act like a Christian. I mean, I, you could act better and that would be nice. We'd love that. Uh, we could use more well-behaved people in hell. But that's not, that's not the point, is it? You can't act like a Christian. You actually have to become something different. You have to be reconciled to God. Now that is gonna affect everything about your relationships. Question. Yes. So prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, this time that Paul is talking about, was there no way for Gentiles to be reconciled to God? Um, let me answer that 
this is a long answer. I'll give you the short version. Before the time of Jesus, was there no way for Gentiles to be reconciled to God? I'll tell you what the Jews thought. You could become a Jewish convert, a proselyte. You were still a second-class citizen, but you were better than the Gentiles. So fundamentally, there was no mechanism before the time of Christ for a Gentile to be reconciled to God. You might acknowledge God, and that's a good thing, but there was no covenantal way to do this before Jesus Christ. Very few Gentiles became Jews. Does the phrase abolishing the law of commandments include the Jewish food laws? So let me give you another short answer. We talk a lot about this. You may have a lot of questions, but fundamentally, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. It ran its course. It pointed to Jesus and it was completed. Remember that it is finished on the cross? It is finished. It's like when you have a contract, let's say you're buying a car and you're making payments on your car. You can break the contract and say, I'm tearing it up. And they're like, yeah, and I'm putting you in jail. You can break the contract. That's not what happened to the law of Moses. You can finish making the payments and the contract is done. Does that make sense? Jesus finished making the payments and the contract was done. So what went away? The peculiar covenant with the Jews was fulfilled. The food laws, the, what are called the cultic laws, sacrifices, obviously there's no need for a sacrifice, uh, special days, all those things went away. What didn't go away is what's called the moral law because that existed before the law of Moses and it still exists after the law of Moses. Sexual immorality was not okay before the law of Moses. It wasn't okay in the law of Moses and it's not okay after the law of Moses. In fact, Jesus ups the bar a little bit and says, okay, now that you've been trained with the idea that sexual immorality is all right, I actually want to do away with lust in your heart. I want to actually get to the heart of the matter. Does that make sense? Remember Jesus teaching in that? Okay. The, what's called the moral law has always been there. That continued. But the peculiarities of that particular covenant, food laws, cultic laws, things like that, those were fulfilled. So, good question. So, you, I want to move on from this because I want to personalize this a little bit. But basically, you get the vertical reconciliation, horizontal reconciliation. This is how Paul says it. This is just another statement of what this is. Do you not realize that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. If you want to know what does baptism mean, Paul says that you were buried with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might live a brand new life, walk in newness of life. Let me just put that in more modern language. So you can live a brand new life. What does it not say? 
You can be a better person. You can live a cleaned up life. No, it's way more than self-improvement. You can be a brand new creation. What does he go on to say? For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him. In other words, our old identity, our old self died. Christ didn't come to make better people. He came to make brand new people. This is what I meant when I said there is no application here. Therefore, go do this. I just want you to believe that this is true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you actually believe that that is true? That's the cure for the idea of a lack of peace. When Jesus said, peace I give you. He didn't mean the world's going to go well. He didn't even mean your life's going to go well. He just meant, I'm going to make you a brand new you and you have every spiritual blessing that ever matters. God chose you. I have rescued you by grace. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. And the spirit of God seals you and you will live forever with me. You are a brand new creation in Christ. Do you believe that? That's the application is you just need to believe that that is true because God says that's true. He said your old self died and so sin died with it. So you would no longer be enslaved to sin. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, do you believe that that is true? You were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the very cornerstone and the whole structure being joined together. You are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit, the spirit that lives in you when you come together as the temple of God, we call that worship services. When the believers of God, those who are saved come together, you become a temple and the spirit of God in all of us is the dwelling place of God. He doesn't live in the Holy of Holies anymore. He lives in you and where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there with you. Why? Because the very Spirit of God is there with you. That's what it's talking about. So the idea of peace, our peace comes not from something we do, from something God did. And I want to talk about a word here just a little bit. So let me uh, go back to... So you have been saved by grace through faith. And I want to talk about this word just a little bit. You know what grace is. It's a gift. It's favor that God has given you. I did nothing. It's a gift to me. It's free. You know what being saved means. You've been rescued. Why? Well, as for you, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Remember verse 1? 
when you used to live in the way of this world, when you used to pursue the passions of your heart and the desires of your mind, you were dead. You just didn't know it yet. That's where you were going. But God, God acted through his favor and rescued you. Make sense? This is simple. This is the gospel. This is the meaning of the good news. You've been saved by grace through faith. What is faith? So I want to tell you that there's one Greek word here, and it translates as believe, or belief, faith, trust. These are three English words that translate one Greek word. Everywhere you see those words, same word in Greek. Those three words mean something very different in, uh, in English. This is just a translation issue. I want you to translate this everywhere you see it as trust because that's the closest English word. And I'll give you an example. And you all know this cognitively. But for example, I've got this ladder. And so I'm looking at the ladder. I'm getting ready to go up, uh, not to the very top of the roof, but I'm going to go up a ways. I'm looking at the ladder. And you know how they put these, probably for litigation reasons, they put this big thing, weight limit, right? And I put on a few pounds, but let's just say I'm not near that weight limit. So I believe that that ladder will hold me. When I go up that ladder, I trust that the ladder will hold me. Do you see the difference? In English, those are two different things. Believing something and trusting something are very, very different things. You've heard so many stories about this, I'm sure, if you've ever heard sermons, heard stories, so I'm not trying to beat this to death. I really want you to stop and think, and everywhere you see the word faith, everywhere you see believe, I really want you to translate that trust because that's what this is talking about. It's not talking about, well, I believe that I'm saved, that God's saved me by grace because I believe in him. James says, wait a minute, even the demons believe you see what he's saying? So I want to change that word to tell you what it really is a good way of saying it is. The demons, however, do not trust in Jesus Christ. They're in active war against Jesus Christ, but they definitely believe in Jesus Christ. They even believe he is who he says he is. You are the son of God. But they don't trust him. They're rebelling. The essence of this is, is you got to get on the ladder. So what does it actually mean to have faith in Christ, to trust Christ? It means this, you don't have a plan B. It means that if this isn't true, you are doomed. It's like climbing that ladder. What if there's a typo? You know, what if it's not 220 pound weight limit? What if it's 120 pound? Then I'm doomed, okay? That thing is coming down and so am I. In other words, faith is being so all in, trusting God, not just believing in God. You can do that from a distance and a lot of us do it. I believe that I'm reconciled to God, but I still have a lot of anxiety and I still worry a lot. I'm not trying to get on your case. I just really want us 
to see there's an answer to this. I don't have peace inside. Do we trust God? Trusting is saying, if God's not with me in this, it isn't gonna work. I am so relying on God that I am leaning on him, and if it's not true, I'm going to fall down. Is that how our faith life looks? If God doesn't show up, I'm gonna fall flat on my face because I'm all in. I'm not leading a balanced life. Well, I believe you, but I'm kind of doing this. I used to have a sign on my desk at work. This was remind us to be risk takers. And I was in a very risk averse business, so it was ironic. But it said, you can't steal second base with your foot on first. <laughs> well, I believe I can steal second, but I'm gonna keep my foot on first. That's belief, but that's not trust, is it? So here's the essence of what the scripture is saying is peace. Jesus Christ brought peace, reconciliation. That's true. And if I believe it, then I might go in and out with that. But if I go in all in, I trust that what you say is true. I trust that this situation is going to work out. I trust that if I'm good to people that are nice to me, in the end, it will be right. And it will all be worth it. I trust that God will make good for every betrayal that I have had and every unkindness and every persecution. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not belief. That's trust. Like, if he doesn't, I'm in deep trouble because I'm all in on that. That's what this passage means. There's no application. If you want peace, the peace that passes understanding, and prayer's a big part of this. I mean, you talk all this over with God, but the ultimate question is Jesus gonna say, I can, I can help you. I can take charge of your whole life if you will just trust me. It doesn't do any good to say, I trust you, get your hands off the wheel. I mean, that's, we do that, don't we? It's like, I trust you, but no, what, uh, I'll, I'll get us a ways. I'll let you know when you can drive. The, this passage, and I, I just feel this so passionately for you, is if we want peace with God, if we want peace with others, we have to actually believe this is true. You are already, already, a member of God's household. You are already reconciled to him. You have already been chosen. You have already been redeemed. You have already have the spirit of God in you. Now trust Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? There's no conditional here. If you are leaning on Jesus Christ, he will never let you down. Amen? That's the lesson. And I mean it seriously. There's no go do this, just go believe this. It will make a huge difference in your life. So when you come back next Wednesday, if, if this doesn't happen, if you trust this, that this is true and I'm gonna live like it's true and you do not have more peace, I will give you your money back. Full <laughs> money back, guarantee. Because next time, what we're gonna talk about is, well, okay, we'll look around at the church. Let's forget the Gentiles for a minute. Forget those people. Let's talk about us. 
Why do we have so many denominations? Why are we not more unified? Is it okay that we have denominations? Are we doing something wrong because we have denominations? That's what Paul wants to talk about in the next chapter. I'll see you next time.